0: Greetings, everyone. You're listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe, and we're going to continue our journey exploring all things business, leadership, and uh, who knows what else. (laughs) My guest today is a gentleman named Will Sampson. Will, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Doug. So great to be here.
0: Yeah, Will is uh, a fellow coach. He's a business advisor and and leadership development guru of sorts. I had the privilege of being on his show a a while back, and I think we're going to carry over or spill over, whatever you want to call it, and uh, continue our discussions. But as is a little bit of tradition here, Will, tell everybody first uh, some of your background.
1: You bet. So uh, my background is um, I bring the worlds of of sociology and organizational development together with a background in technology and and management. So um, for almost 20 years, I've helped organizations through the process of change, and um, that began early on more sort of instrumental, helping move to new HR systems, and what that's become more and more is... Working with large organizations on culture and particularly in the in the tech MA space where I've spent a lot of time. And then I also do individual coaching, which I'm doing more and more of, particularly with entrepreneurs. Um so I'm really thankful I get to show up and and um you know help maybe make the world a little better for the people who go to work every day. I mean, I I got into change management because I believe that um, so many of our projects didn't run well, and we could run them better, and so that's just grown over time to this great work that I get to do, helping people uh, make their life a little little better and more whole, and with lived on purpose.
0: So, I think I would like to kind of carve out. You, you obviously packed a lot, and you come with a with a great background. There, there were two key things you had in there that. I'd like to unpack and maybe it'll become the core focus of our show here today. One is company culture, but two is change management and maybe it's chicken and egg. I don't know, but um, I know when we were in the green room talking, uh, we've got a lot of common background in that observing companies try to go through major change but they ran face first into the culture that they had right. evolved into and that culture maybe was not ready to adopt whatever that change might be right. so uh, I mean I've I'm long enough in the tooth I can go all the way back I remember at our little bank when we first started rolling out desktop computers to everybody well that was a big culture change and people you know didn't know what that meant and how to do that and what that was all about but fortunately our culture was reasonably progressive at the time so you know by and large it was a good adoption rate so um, without a lot of pain but uh, tell us more about kind of where those
1: two worlds collide for you you bet so i've had the privilege of doing some really great uh, acquisitions and mergers over the years. And what I find is that the um, the success of those efforts and more broadly, the se- success of change efforts of, of any organization, uh, very rarely have to do with the quality of the project management. They very, very rarely hinge on whether you made the right technology decisions, they all—they always, in my experience, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but in my experience, um, they always hinge on whether you've paid attention to the culture and the cultural drivers of the change. And that, it's easiest to see this in, in a merger or an acquisition. So, especially in the tech space, what often happens is you have a you have a big tech company that goes out and buys a smaller tech company for a variety of reasons. They think it'll be quicker to to market. There's the the company that they're buying has a product that is going to help them. They think gain a competitive ad, advantage. Uh, maybe they're doing it for cost savings as well. But they they invariably make the decision relative to either market share or cost savings or some combination thereof. But then they <clears throat> what they what they don't often do and where they end up getting caught in their tracks is that what uh, what stands in their way is a difference in cultural culture and cultural expectations. So the people that are showing up to work every day have an expectation of why they're there, what kind of culture they're going to get, even if they even if they're not talking about it. And so <clears throat> uh, rather than the barrier being, Can we bring our products together into a single market and, you know, offer a new commercial model? Or can we um, consolidate workforces and and put everybody into, you know, less seats in office spaces or less remote workspaces? Um, It's really, do I expect the same things? Am I showing up here for the same reason? And so where you see that in in tech acquisitions is um, oftentimes you'll have a smaller startup Um, you know, kind of a a startup culture. People who went there often have had a bigger sense of mission. And then this larger company buys them and they want to incorporate them. They want them to come into their big gleaming office tower and start wearing (laughs) shirts with collars to work and things like this. And, And suddenly there's this, there's this clash. There's a lack of understanding. Well, you know, I thought, I thought I was working at this kind of company. Now it's that kind of company and I'm not sure I want to contribute. And it's people look, like as innovative as some of these products can be, it's always people that make, that create the value in the products themselves. Um, and so if companies aren't paying attention to those um, to those cultural cues, then the greatest strategy is not going to succeed. Peter Drucker said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And we see that time and time again. And so what I have found over time, helping companies with with their change management efforts is that my really my frontline question is are you willing to work on the issues of culture because if you're not the greatest strategy in the world won't succeed and if you are you can you can do some minimal viable product work on strategy you can be less than perfect on your strategy if your culture if you have a culture that's going to allow uh people to grow
0: yeah i think you're right on the point that Change management by itself is been relegated to, to somewhat almost scientific or programmatic solution. We, we've got a lot, well, we have a whole body of knowledge that is called the Project Management Institute and, <clears throat> excuse me, they've got a great culture and frameworks and models. So, I'll call it administratively. We can run projects we can we can find really skilled project managers to come in and help us make these changes. But <clears throat> the culture inevitably does get in the way and right. as you were talking, I'm reminded of my own experience in the banking world, and banking is you know the last forty years has been fraught with merger and acquisition, and it it happens daily right. and I survived three different uh, merger situations. In one, we were the small regional bank that was acquired by a big global bank, and we were afraid of that, obviously. But the the takeaway was there was an amazing blend of cultures that was very positive, and it, it just worked. And in in spite of our geographic differences, we... Found a great harmony in the way we looked at the world, the way we believed in doing banking. So there was, it it was a great merger and all the hurdles that were expected were met and, you know, plus. But the second time around, it wasn't so fun. (laughs) Fortunately, I was on the acquiring side at that point and uh, the acquiree, uh, their culture, was just a, as close to 180 degree opposite of ours as you could get. And I won't go into all the details, but the bottom line was it was only about six months post merger, and most of the leaders of the acquired organization were gone. Were gone yeah. either by choice, which was the majority, right. or by circumstance, because they just weren't going to yield to the plan that, that was there. And right they were asked to leave.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, people are complex. You know, we think, we we tend to manage our products and our work generally in corporate settings in terms of the triple constraints, time, scope, and money. And so it makes sense to us that, you know, if we're short on time, you know, throw some money at it or reduce scope, right? And so we we recognize that those things, those three things sort of live in tension with each other and we can adjust one to affect the other. But that's not the same thing with people. Like if if we don't have if we don't have the right people, what do you do? Do you put more people in? Do you take people like it's people aren't the same kind of resource as time, scope, and money? <clears throat> but we like time, scope, and money because they're easier to measure. When you get into people, it's complex and it's awful and it's sticky and it involves humans and emotions and just it's just stuff that you know is hard to measure. It's it's hard to uh calculate what the outcome will be. If in fact, we're even really that good at time, scope and money. That's a whole other, the the state of our projects is a whole other conversation, but, um, but yeah, people are complex. And so managing toward people and managing toward culture um, is a fourth constraint that we don't like to get into because it's messy. It's hard to measure. And because I've done a lot of work in, in mergers, it's particularly hard to, it to write a deal book against people. You can write a deal book against market value. You can write a deal book against um, you know, reduction in cost. You can write a deal book against time to market for particular markets or particular products. But it's really difficult to to write the the movement of people into your deal book because they are, you know, people are are hard to predict um, and they're hard to measure. Um, and and even harder to measure because we we don't. And so there's this, there's really an absence of case study and an absence in the literature on how we move people. I mean, there's some, there is some, there is some good work there, but not enough because generally we don't measure it. And so what often happens, I remember I had a, I was doing a merger for a, for a big client um, and the executive sponsor, we were at a social gathering um, while I was in town. And He pulled me aside. He said, tell me something that I, as the executive sponsor, won't know. Like, tell me something that because I'm at a certain level, I'm protected from seeing. And what I said to him is that if your effort fails, you won't know why. And the problem is because we didn't measure. If you didn't actually measure people and culture at the beginning, there's no way you can account for the failure of it. Toward the end of the pro- of the project. Um, and so I think that's the main reason we don't like to do it is it's hard. It's it's hard and it's it's hard to calculate time and, and value against it, particularly when a lot of times these mergers and these change efforts are being led by outside consultants who wanna be able to build their time against a certain model. And it's people are just more finicky than that.
0: What I've tended to talk to leaders about to, to try to at least start the conversation about how to better assess, manage, and direct people, I, I remind them that, uh, and I like your TimeScope money e- example there, in my mind, those three factors are two-dimensional beasts. Right, right. Um, but when you start talking about the human factor, it's a three-dimensional, you, yeah. you, you, you've you got the same two dimensions that all those other variables might have, but you've got a third one that I like to look at as an up and down, and I refer to the Maslow's hierarchy as the basis of that. Right. That anybody familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, the ladder ranking of a human need and what it takes to get to self-actualization Well, the logic is that we as human beings show up on a day-to-day basis at a slightly different position on that hierarchy of need. And maybe yesterday we were knocking out of the park. We were in the zone. The work product we were cranking out was just amazing. But this morning, I had a fight with my wife walking out the door. I didn't, by the way. I'm just saying an example. And now I show up at work very distracted, very emotionally untangled or tied up in in another direction. And the brain science people tell us that when we go into a fight or flight mode, which is the position you're in in the lower rung of Maslow's hierarchy, we don't even get blood supply to our frontal cortex of our brain. And guess what? That's where all the work happens. Right. So, yeah your your work motor is literally turned off when you're being stressed in those other personal areas so what that says as as a leader you've got a whole big challenge because the team you had yesterday may not be the team you have today. (laughs) Right. And I'm saying that in a real micro way, but uh, that's the challenge. And and that's that third dimension that makes it so Mm -hmm. hard.
1: Yeah. And Maslow's an interesting one as well, because toward the end of his life, Abraham Maslow was actually working on what he believed we existed above, above the top of that pyramid, which is what he called group actualization or actualization into the collective um and here again we haven't spent a lot of time measuring like we have a whole we have a growing body of research on how our brain looks when we are um, accomplishing versus you know fighting flighting and so on um what we don't have is a ton of of literature on how what our brain looks like in the group. Um, and there's there's some growing research. If you, there's a guy named Dan Siegel, who's done work on what he calls interpersonal neurobiology. So he takes the neuroscience and he combines it with sociology and anthropology and some other uh, of the social science. The reason why that matters in a management, this can seem like an academic conversation, but, but again, so many of our management models and our, our leadership models, involve very individualistic views of the of the worker and we don't have good tools to really measure what teams look like what individuals in teams look like we know what teams look like we know what individuals look like but we don't have a ton of sort of one to the other tools there is a tool that i use um, there's a company called human insight um, which is up in uh, out in the netherlands rather and they make it a tool called the AEM cube that allows me to sort of visually map um, what individuals look like in the team. But I think this is part of the problem too. Like we're trying to catch up to the, uh, you know, what's a growing reality in the workforce today, especially as we become more and more remote is we need better understandings of the collective and how, how we create collective movement in a team. Um, because we so often focus on the, indi- we still focus very heavily on individual motivation, and we're not able to necessarily move the collective. And when we can't move the collective, then we can't create that cultural change that's the necessary underpinning for for meaningful and lasting change in the organization.
0: Uh, that is interesting, and I'm I'm thinking through a number of team-based situations I've got and. Uh, I've uh, I've had occasion to tell this story a couple of times, so if my listeners have heard this, I I apologize, but I think it's pertinent to what we're saying here. I was doing some teamwork at one of the large oil and gas companies, and and we did the best we could with the tools we had to survey and assess everybody's belief and uh, definition of where they were on the team, what the team was about, how the team was organized, how the team was doing, we got to the day when we got, wanted to analyze and, and as a team, take a look at the, those reports. And sure enough, there's one outlier on all the grids we had. There was one guy that was always way out of bounds with everybody else. And the bulk of the team was pretty well centered and in, in lockstep with everything. So we, here we were in person and to your point, the how individuals work in the collective um, we opened our books, and before much was said, one guy raised his hand, and he goes, I'm the outlier. I just want to I, I want to <laughs> eliminate all, the, all right. the doubt and confusion. We don't need to go on a witch hunt. I'm going to claim it. I, I believe I'm the outlier. And he said, it, it didn't surprise me at all, he said, because right. I've felt very alienated for a long time and and he got it got real serious real fast he said and to be honest i'm thinking about asking for a transfer i don't think i fit on this team and the i wish i had recorded the moment in the room there because the body language around the table all went you know yeah Sure? No and yeah. they they kind of did a collective no don't yeah. leave us we yeah. we're sorry if we make you feel bad for your ideas but you have inspired so much other good work in this team by right. being the contrarian and and the and the you know boy in the woods crying wolf uh, and uh please don't leave us we we value that and it, it was a it was a real kumbaya moment there
1: in their culture yeah 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 and when we can better understand why people contribute what they think their best contribution is we can understand sometimes even the ways we use language I remember I, I was working with a, a client. This was a couple of years ago. It was a good-sized real estate firm. And the CEO came to us and he said, look, I am I feel like I'm really getting, I'm doing the work, I'm leading people and they just don't seem to be able to follow me. And what, what could possibly go wrong? So we, we did a, um, you know, we measured their team. And <clears throat> one of the ways we look at um, contribution is, whether somebody thinks of themselves as sort of a big picture strategy person or more on the scale of process optimization. And what we learned was that the CEO was heavily, heavily on the out front big picture strategy, always what's next, what's next, where his team was a a team of process optimizers. And so he was saying, "Look, I'm doing hard work." And he was, because he was always looking for new opportunities. What's next? How do we grow? How do we how do we expand the business? And his team was saying, "Well, we're working really hard. We're doing all this process optimization and and so literally they were using the same words like hard work and doing, you know, putting in the putting in the time and all that, but they meant different things even with the words they used. And so oftentimes when we can understand what individuals think they best contribute to a team, then we can also make sense of the very words they use. And so we can begin to create a common, a common language, a common grammar for for how to how to think about the work a team is doing. You know, another I I,
0: I believe I'm going to claim that it's related to that. And what came to mind is I, I have worked with the leaders who are in situations where they might be trying to do that big picture, what's next kind of work, and right. I call that leading from the front. So right. you're 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 kind of trying to set the stage and and pull people along to to this new next that you want to go to. But there's also a reality that on on some occasions, especially in the corporate setting, where teams generally pre-exist, right. And an yeah. executive gets assigned, or he's the one, tra- he, she is the one transferred in to now take over that team. So there's an, also a notion, I believe, of leading from the rear. Yeah. And where that fits, and I would imagine it's in some of the technology companies in particular, when, when you've got a team of already highly motivated, highly capable, highly engaged employees, they don't necessarily need that lead from the front guy. They don't need anybody waving a flag in front of them. Right. right. They they need the leader that can kind of stand behind and say go go go, you know, yeah. you know, yes that's good. Yeah, you know. Uh, and and give direction, but it's 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 a whole different dynamic.
1: It is. And and I think it's also important to understand that Every team has a certain sort of predefined set of needs, or or, or at least they, we can understand that every team needs, the, needs future direction. They also need process optimization. They need to make sure they're getting their stuff done. They need to focus on content, but they need to focus on people. They need to be willing to manage uh, complexity or deal with complexity. And so part of what I try to do is measure, you know, what's, What's not present in the team, and how can that be augmented? And because even take a, the ideal CEO, uh, who's the ideal CEO? Is it Steve Jobs or is it Mark Benioff? Right. So those are both great CEOs. Mark Benioff is an off-the-chains people person who just can't get enough of um, you know hanging around with people, and then you've got somebody like Steve Jobs, who, while he was CEO of Apple, was not exactly thought of as a as a people person, but you know, Steve Jobs had Tim Cook. Before Tim Cook was CEO, he was the operations guy for Steve Jobs. And so Steve Jobs could be spending a whole lot of time making sure that the right screw was going into the, um, uh, you know, the the MacBook or whatever, <clears throat> because he knew Tim Cook was there to to make sure the operations stuff got done. And so it's also like making sure that team, all of the needs of a team are met um, from you know, exploration to optimization from people to content, from complexity. You need some people who are lower level of complexity to really be able to get the basic work done. And then you need people who understand uh, the higher levels of complexity so they can continue to move that organization along the growth curve and continue to move them forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So much sometimes is put on the the CEO or the senior most leader right. and there's a there's a bit of a balancing that needs to happen and um, I had a guest on my show a few episodes ago and uh, the the title of the episode was Two in the Canoe and what we were talking about is the ongoing need for the serious discussion between the boss and the and employee. And the discussion is this. It's important to talk about expectation and obligation. And those are factors that are true on both sides of the table. We know it's easy usually to assess the employee expectations, you know, they come with, and, and some employees are more vocal than others about voicing the expectation. But the question that doesn't always get answer asked or and subsequently answered is, "All right, Mr. or Miss Employee, that's great. I hear your expectations. You tell me your sense of obligation to get there. Right? Yeah. What do you want to do? What What do you think is fair? What do you think is reasonable? What 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 does that look like? Now that you've shared that with me. Let me reciprocate. Let me tell you my expectations. And I'll tell you my obligations that I'm going to follow to help you be successful. Right. Yeah. And those are discussions that really, when you think about it in the purest sense, they just don't happen.
1: Right. They don't happen. And again, they don't happen because they're complex. They involve People and emotions, and and um, you know, it's it's not it's not so cleanly measured. You can't you can't put emotions on a balance sheet, um, <clears throat> and it, it really gets down to the question of whether we're willing to uh, make and keep <clears throat> agreements um, with each other in 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 our corporate settings, like we would in in the rest of uh, in the rest of our life. If we have a friend and and the last 3 times we were going to get together for coffee with this friend that didn't show up over time we'd say well that's not a that's not a good friendship that's not a good relationship um, but all across corporate america we have people who aren't really given a good understanding of what their obligations are what the agreements are and so we wonder why <clears throat> we have people who feel disconnected <clears throat> excuse me from their work it's largely because they don't they don't have a good understanding of what their work is
0: yeah well earlier you spoke you you mentioned the dynamic that we're all dealing with now of the the remote workforce what what are some of the observations the touch points the recommendations that you're giving leaders uh, about handling and and doing a better job with a remote workforce
1: yeah it's interesting i had a a client Last year, as they were starting to bring people back, they had they had a top performer. So uh, this particular client was in the Washington D.C. area. They had a top performer, and during the pandemic, that individual moved to a different part of the state, much further, much uh, much further away, more remote, uh, into um, Western Maryland. And they continued to perform, and in fact, they had really grown in that role, remote. and so the employer had created a strategy where they said we're going to bring everybody back in. Um and this particular individual it didn't make sense to them to come back into the office because they were doing so well remote well, you know why would they move back in? And so this company was going to had created a policy that said we pay people based on where they live. And so because this person Lives further away and lives in a less expensive area. We're going to pay them less. We're going to dock their pay, essentially, even though they had been growing in their in their field and and just really contributing. So the biggest advice I give to companies around the remote uh, remote workforce issue is is again a question of culture, but it's a question of whether you're nurturing nurturing culture and whether you're willing to accept the realities of the market today. You know, the pandemic didn't um, create problems. It just revealed problems that already existed. People already felt disconnected from their work. They already felt um, that some of their work was purposeless and they weren't quite sure why they did what they did. Um, and and the pandemic really just kind of blew that up. And so now we have companies struggling to understand how are we going to create meaningful um, work for people, when we now live in this remote world, and the advice I'm I'm generally giving is to is to stop thinking only in terms of physical spaces. Really think in terms of community. And there's some really great new tools that are coming out. Um, and then there's one called Workspace.io, and there's there's another one that escapes me right now. But there's there's some innovation creating. Uh, spaces where people can begin to come together virtually um, and create more of the water cooler um, setting um but because it really does come down to you know again ex- just like you were just saying expectations and obligations what do we expect what what are you obligated to do as a as a person in this in this work community and how can we foster that <clears throat> so I think if companies can um kind of foster that, that type of community remotely then they can they can get through it because the, the world has changed <clears throat> people now expect that remote work is a thing that that's that should be available to them and so you know my my advice to my companies is that's the new reality how are you going to live with what is now true what is now real
0: yeah yeah. I I was speaking with a recruiter, um, you know, a headhunter, high-end and largely in the tech space. And he said one prospective client company approached him and said, all right, we have the this slate of jobs we need to fill. And oh, by the way, we demand in-house attendance, yeah. you know, five days a week. And, and the recruiter said, then i'm not your recruiter i'm going to tell you that's a non-starter for me nobody i know in the last two years has agreed to commit to a you know full-time 40-hour return to work arrangement and he asked the client he said are you sure that's uh, hard and fast oh yeah we're we're gonna that's the way we want to work he said well then yeah i'm done yeah, I won't. I won't even take this assignment.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, one of the one of the classic case studies of not paying attention to the market is is Kodak, and not being aware of the digital transformation that was happening in the market. And and I think we're going to look back now at at some really big employers um, who seem to be dominating the market who weren't willing to to understand the realities of the remote workforce. Um, and we're going to be write, writing case studies in ten years about them. Um, the reality is that that um, there's been this out migration from from major urban areas that's been happening Um, we see it in the data people are more interested in these smaller cities not you know not tiny towns but often smaller cities um, Asheville Durham places like that where there's more of a, a much better quality of life and I think for It's unrealistic to believe that major corporations can continue to locate these huge office sites or factories or whatever it is in every town where their workers are. Um, But if they can figure out how to include those people in a virtual framework, in an ecosystem, a work-life ecosystem, um, that also gives people the ability to live in these places with greater qualities of life. I think they're going to they're gonna have a more resilient workforce. That's the, I mean, what are we looking for in, what are companies looking for in their workforce? They're looking for a sense of resilience. They're looking for people who believe in the mission of the organization. They're committed to helping grow that company because they themselves are growing personally. And that's difficult to do um, when we're, you know, when we're only giving people a limited option in terms of where to live. The reality is, we, you know, we live in a global economy now. I had a I had a client in Hungary this morning. You know, I, I'll be speaking to somebody in Malaysia tomorrow morning. I mean, that's just the reality of the right. market we live in. Right. And to assume that that everybody is going to come back to this, you know, time when we all go in and gather around the water cooler in a physical office. Um, It's just simply not reality and companies that pursue it. Like I said, I think we're going to be writing case studies about them in a decade or so. Well, I
0: agree with you. And and the other dimension that I think we're also going to be writing case studies about is the level and effectiveness of communication in the remote world. Yeah, You know, leaders, and and by the way, I agree with your statement, COVID didn't really create any new things. It just revealed weaknesses that were already there. Communication from leaders is one of those things. The the leader that is not a good, clear, regular communicator, he might have survived in in the in office environment because you're walking in the hall and you you know you have this. Oh, by the way, you know here's right. what here's what I meant about that thing I said. You know, let's get this mopped up and cleaned right. up. And that's a that's a bad behavior that i think was exacerbated by the convenience of the in-in-house attendance right. now that we're remote you you know there is the issue of zoom fatigue or teams fatigue you know you don't want everybody on the call all day long so you have to be crisp you have to be direct you have to be clear and yeah you sometimes have to be regular in your communication and i believe we're actually going to be writing case studies about management effectiveness for communication as an outcrop of COVID.
1: no i think that's exactly right and what we're what we're going to see in the data i'm convinced is that um Good pra- people with good practices got better and people with bad practices uh, diminished um, because you're right, communication. You know, one of the things that um, I will often uh, do as sort of a first line with a client um, is to implement just a basic meeting strategy. You know, and I'm always shocked at how many corporate environments I walk into where executives, high level, highly paid executives are getting invited to meetings that have no agenda that have no decision framework no no knowledge of whether the meeting was effective or not and so i, I do think what we're going, what we're finding is that that in this remote space those who have good practices so they communicate clearly they create meetings that have clear agendas with clear decision outcomes um, just the things that would make you effective even in an in-person environment. Um, and those who have those practices are um, are going to be, are going to continue to be effective in this virtual environment. And if you believe you're just going to be able to catch people, that's going to be less effective. And I think it's also true that, um, you know, creating a culture, creating a remote culture that works does Get back to what you were saying earlier about obligations and expectations. So something as simple as keeping cameras on. You know, I, I find I go into corporate environments where I'll be sitting on a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting where I see maybe people's profile pictures or their names, no real face-to-face interaction. So it does take a little more work, but but um but those are the kinds of practices that will make people succeed virtually in the same way that they made some people succeed uh in when they were in person if if you were a good communicator if you planned good meetings if you made sure you did a lot of real face time like purposeful face time with people in person you were a good leader same thing is going to be true remotely
0: yeah i agree it's such an interesting challenge and i i love your thinking about the meetings i was coaching one pretty high level executive once and he was lamenting that he he just feels like he had his own meeting fatigue because he was constantly invited to these things all over the company at all different levels and i said well have you ever stopped to analyze, the do your own after action on whether that meeting was important and to see if a pattern emerges? And we talked about it further. And, and what did emerge was the idea that he was getting invited to meetings because people knew something they were working on was going to touch one of his areas. And it was more of a courtesy thing. Right. They didn't need his input for the decision going forward, but it was more of a, a common courtesy yeah. to invite him to attend, right, and I said, why don't you delegate that, that invite to one of your other lieutenants, right, you know, if, right. if you want your area represented just to hear what's going on, I, I get that, and you're definitely a, you know, it was a global brand, so there's a lot of movement at that level. Right. I said, why don't you delegate that? And uh, about a month later, I was in his office and he just, he was kind of beaming. And I said, you look a lot different. What happened? He said, do you know my meeting schedule has been cut in half? And, yeah, and exactly. I adopted two things. I did what you said about challenging. He said, but I also added a requirement. Whoever was organizing the meeting needed to provide me an agenda. Yep. And i reserved the right and i needed it 24 hours in advance not not day of right. and right. he said i started delegating almost all of my invites to my team right. and he yeah. said guess what he said they're inspired now because they're doing things that i used to do and they they think there's some kind of value in that and i said well there is value in that you're right. you're grooming them you know for right for these things. And he said, yeah, it, it was all good. So,
1: And that's how culture gets created for good or bad. You know, so if, if this, if the CEO is uh, going to meetings that obviously he, she or he does not need to be in, then the senior leadership, the C-suite is going to maybe be inclined to do that. And if the C-suite does it, then the senior leadership does it. And then the, and then the managers and, and so on, and it just cascades down, but the same is true the other way. Yeah. I had a, a client um, last year, and that was that again. The singer. One of the most revolutionary things we did was we gave the CEO and the C suite the right. They they almost like they needed it, but we gave them a framework for saying, "Here's when. Here's what I will look for in every meeting. It has to have an agenda. You have to tell me why I'm there, and it has to have a decisions needed uh, statement. So, what exactly are we deciding? Um, And we gave them the right, uh, them and the C-suite to turn down any meeting that didn't meet those three criteria. And same thing, it started a cascade where suddenly more meetings are effective, meetings are becoming more effective rather, and people understand why they're sitting there for an hour. Um, and so they're less likely to have their camera off. They're less likely to be disengaged. They're less likely to be checking their stock portfolio or or reading, you know, the the news, watching Instagram while they're sitting on this on this call. Right. And it just over time it's it cascades, either up or down.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Will, we're about up on time here for today. I really appreciate your input and the things you've shared with us. Great. Tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in knowing more
1: gladly, so the best place the one stop shopping for me is at willsamson.com, and that's samson without a p so just w i l l s a m s o n dot com and you can find out more about my coaching my corporate consulting, and uh the other things that i do there now let me uh real quick i i i want to pause and give
0: you maybe a, a, an early uh Early reveal here. You were telling me in the green room you're rolling out a new product. You, do you want to share what that's going to be
1: about? You bet. So we talked about uh, at the beginning of this uh, of the of our conversation. We talked about the issue of culture. And as I've worked, I've been doing change management in cor- with corporations for 20 years now. And as I've worked over time, I've realized that the, the really the issue is culture. That culture is what's preventing them from having these strategic outcomes. And so I'm actually creating a cultural uh, transformation offering that begins with just an introductory workshop and then eventually is a framework for how organizations can transcend, uh, transform their culture, beginning with an initial six months um, and then, and then building a framework for moving forward. So I would love to uh, talk to companies about that as well. Well, we will certainly
0: mention that in the show notes, folks, and uh, as will we do on the links that uh, Will mentioned. So, uh, one last time, Will, thanks for stopping in. Thank you, Doug. this was great. Yeah. Well, folks, as always, I wanna remind you that if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, subscribe to the channel, uh, leave us a like or a, a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And I do want to remind folks that I'm always looking for new guests with great stories and content to share. So if you or someone you know is interested, hop over to my website, leave us a note there, and uh, we'll get in touch. So for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, tell you to have a great day, and hope to see you again real soon.
1: You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like
0: to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.